Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, we're going to pick up at verse 6, the second half of verse 6. A little bit by way of review, last week we, uh, you remember, we had the conversation that took place between the serpent and Eve in the garden. One of the things you'll remember is that man wasn't there. We were like, where's Adam? Where's Adam? It didn't seem to that Adam was anywhere in that conversation. By this week, we're going to find out, and you remember last week we started to see it, that she ends up going to the tree. It sounds like the conversation takes place some distance from the tree because she makes a reference to the tree over in the middle of the garden, and it doesn't sound like they're standing right there. It sounds like it's some distance away. But before the passage is over that, we're, that we were reading, you end up seeing that she's there looking at the tree. All right, And uh, we're going to see today that Adam is going to end up being with her at the tree, or at least in proximity to the fruit. All right, so we're going to be looking at uh, the second half of verse 6 and all of verse 7. But uh, somebody mind reading, how about all of verse 6 and all of verse 7? The woman saw the tree as being good for food, delightful to the eye, and a tree desirable to render one wise. So she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband, who ate, who ate with her. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves skirts. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. All right. Did we ever figure out what the serpent actually was? What the serpent actually was? Oh, that's is right. It Last snake? week. Is it an alligator? Is it a dragon? Great questions. We don't know for sure. We do know that by the time the serpent gets cursed, which is later on in this chapter, that part of the curse involves slithering on the ground. Some people have even taken that and suggested, well, maybe the serpent had legs before the curse, and the curse involved, uh, you're not going to have legs anymore. Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. There's not enough there to answer those questions. We also don't know anything else about the identity other than the use of that word to describe that creature. We know that the nature and character behind it was definitely satanic, but we don't know if it was a creature in the sense of an animal indwelled by Satan or if it was Satan himself taking on the form of a serpent. Um, that's not even answered for us clearly. Wasn't Satan so, referred to as the dragon? Yep, Satan is referred to as the dragon and the devil in two places in Revelation. Yeah. So there is a whole lot that we're going to run across in, in these chapters and this in, in particular now that we're talking about it where we would like to know the answers to questions that the text doesn't feel obligated to provide us answers for. One of those questions also is like, you know, like we talked about, where was the man? Where was the man when the conversation was going on between the serpent and Eve? And now he shows up mm-hmm. and we wonder, did they have any sort of conversation? Did, did Adam say, you know, I don't think this is a good idea? Did Eve try to coerce him? Or did Adam try to coerce her to eat it? Hey, you try it first. Let's see what happens and maybe mm-hmm. I'll try it after. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. We don't know. It would be nice to know. We all have questions that, that uh, the text doesn't feel obligated, though, to tell us. 
So it seems like God is inspired. Uh, God, the Holy Spirit, is inspiring the author of this material to give us the information we need to recognize the story of redemption coming out of it, without being too particular on the details. Some of which we would find probably fascinating. It's going to be fun to get to heaven and be able to finally find these answers. Yeah. You know. All right, moving on from there. What is the name of the tree that she ate from? The tree of good and evil? Is that what it is? Oh, the uh, tree of the knowledge. Good. There you go. Yeah, there we go. Minor difference, right? Minor difference. Sherry's like, I should get credit for that, or at least half credit. <laughs> the reason I'm bringing this up is because the, the tree itself isn't evil. The tree itself isn't necessarily good. I mean, the tree is part of the creation of God, and the trees, when they were created, God declared them good. So if anything, the tree is closer to good than it would be to evil. So we shouldn't assign good or evil to the tree, just recognizing that the tree itself is, a, from eating the fruit is, comes the knowledge of good and evil. All right. How does that happen, though? What does that look like? In their situation, for Adam and Eve, and we're going to find out as we go a couple verse, uh, into the next verse anyway, they're going to find out the difference between good and evil upon eating the fruit. All right. From the verse that Mike read, where it said, then the eyes of both of them were open. That's verse 7. They knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So it provides for them the opportunity to know evil, good and evil, where they didn't before. Up until this point, they knew good. Everything they had experienced up until this point was good, except for man being alone. They didn't know evil. All downhill from there. All downhill from there. So once they ate from the fruit, what did the knowledge of evil give them? The knowledge that what they had just done was evil. And opened the locks on the doors that held all the evil back, basically. Because all of our sin, everything evil, can trace its roots, humanity speaking, humanity's experience, to this point. Good and evil, starting right there. The knowledge of good and evil. They knew good up until that point. They didn't know evil. Then when they eat from the fruit, they find out that was bad. That was a bad choice. That was evil. And now they know the difference, and it's too late to go back. So at its core, what is evil? It's about choosing what you want over what God wants. At its core, (laughs) it's about having your own way. Resisting God's will and doing your own will. Living for your own pleasure rather than living for the pleasure of God. At its core, it's selfishness. Doing what they wanted to do and disregarding what God wanted them to do. That was where the evil was. So Eve takes from the fruit. She ends up eating it. She gives to her husband. He ends up eating it. Paul in the New Testament, I want to encourage us. Let's all go to 2 Corinthians 11.3. And I want to ask this question as you're turning there. Was Adam deceived and was Eve deceived? Who was deceived and who was not deceived or were they both deceived? 2 Corinthians 11.3. What does that one say? Anybody might read that? I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Excellent. So from that passage, we have the mention of Eve and we have the mention of the servant. Was Eve, from that passage, deceived? Yeah. Yep. According to that passage, Eve was deceived. Let's go to 1 Timothy 2.14. Somebody mind reading that one? 
And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Ooh. All right. Mm-hmm. Yay for the men. We weren't deceived, right? It's This is a place we could cheer for the man because he didn't get, he wasn't deceived, but Eve was. But wait a minute. Is that really an appropriate cheer? Because if he's deceived, boo on her that she got deceived. But Adam does it knowingly. Adam, not deceived, Gosh. rebels against God without being tricked. Ooh, you don't want to be rooting for Adam's team right there. <laughs> did he know at that point? Apparently he did. He did? Yeah. Because he wasn't deceived? Because he was not deceived. Oh. Ooh. And what's even more ominous about that is that he, if you remember, going back to Genesis now, going back to Genesis, look back at Genesis 2.15. What does it say there? The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to care for it. Right. God gave Adam a commission, and part of the commission was to care for this garden. And then he ends up, right after that, and a couple verses after that, creating woman as a helpmeet for him. And he is to take care of her. He's violating the commission given to him by God to protect and care for the garden and to protect and care for his spouse. Not being deceived, knowing full well he's rebelling against God, and he forfeits the responsibilities that God ended up giving him from the start. Wasn't he out working all day in the garden? He came home, <laughs> dinner waiting. Uh, <laughs> I think you're reading a little too much modern stuff that. into the. <laughs> what? what? You didn't know. Just came home for dinner. <laughs> all right. Turn also to Romans. We're going back on the New Testament again. Turn back to Romans chapter 5. Paul talks about the momentousness of Adam's decision and some of the ramifications that uh, have bearing for us even today. As I was telling Dave right now, and, and saying, hey, I think you're reading a little too much of the modern stuff into that. Maybe we're not. You turn to Romans 5, and starting in verse 12, going through 12 through 19, it says this, Therefore, just as through one man, that's Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no, no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So Adam is a bad role model, but he also serves as a type, the archetype, if you will, of Christ. All right, Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man, that's Adam, for by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift of, by grace, the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one, that's Adam, who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift... So it goes on to basically say Adam set the standard in the sense of sin, that sin comes in because of the result of his decision, and then death as a result of sin. It's not that his choice affected only himself. It's not that his choice affected only himself and his spouse. His choice affected not just the two of them, but ended up affecting even their relationship with God, ended up affecting their relationship to their environment, and ended up affecting our relationship to God and our relationship to the creation. Okay, That one decision had ramifications that, st- that come all the way down to today and affect our standing before God. We end up sinful if for no other reason, because we're related to this guy who made this sinful, the original sinful choice. All right? So just pointing it out, that was a big choice. Sometimes we think that our sinful choices aren't going to have the ramifications that maybe they are. 
Sometimes we might be thinking, oh, it's just one piece of fruit, mm-hmm. right? Whatever the sinful temptation might be. And we think, ah, I could probably get away with it, and God will probably forgive me in the morning. It's just one piece of fruit. Uh, obviously, I'm not speaking of something that's physically edible. I'm speaking of a spiritual temptation of whatever it might be, of whatever sort, in your life. And you've got to realize, sometimes the ramifications are far greater than you would ever imagine. And we've got to resist that and say, God, I am going to do what you are asking me to do, and I'm going to resist where you've asked me to resist, because you've asked me to do that. And you know what's best. You know what's better for my life than I do. And trust that God knows, trust that he knows better than you do. And to, and to resist that, I tell you what, you can avoid a, a world of hurt for every decision that you decide to follow God and not your own selfish pleasures. Going back to verse 7, where the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. All right. Uh, I've got here. I love visual aids. Here we go. we got a visual aid here. These are fig leaves. Picked them last night. Big fig tree that's on, on the street uh, right, right on my bike ride to work. They don't look like you cover much with those, does it? <laughs> and it doesn't look like it would be very fun to cover yourself with fig leaves. One of the interesting things about fig leaves is a lot of the commentaries like to point out that these were probably the biggest leaves that they had on trees back in, in that area at, at that time. Uh, but one of the interesting things about fig leaves, they're trying to cover themselves up, right? <laughs> they're using these. All right? They're sewing them together. One of the interesting things about fig leaves, though, is they don't stay nice and soft and big for very long. They end up drying out and shriveling. These two leaves right here, which you can see are about half the size of these, Wow. these were picked, I think, 12 hours before these. And they were the same size. This was yesterday afternoon. This was yesterday morning. They were the same size? I picked the biggest ones I could find each time. Yeah. And then these... We're on the same branch as these. This is what they shriveled up to. That's two leaves right there. Tiny. Fig leaves in short order dry up, shrivel up, and turn to powder in not too very long. <laughs> right? So they're making their clothes out of this stuff. All right, that's going to become a little more significant in a few minutes. All right. So by looking at that then, uh, and we're going to come back to it, like I said, verse 8 then, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I want to talk a little bit about this verse. Would you imagine this was like that first part of the verse? And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Guilt. Right? Guilt. Guilt. Okay. Not that part yet. The next part of the verse has that. But at this point, we've got this image of God. And and a lot of the popular image, you know, it's got the sun going down. It's got the cool breezes coming through the garden. Right? You've got God strolling. It's it's very lush, right? And he's walking nonchalantly through the garden, looking for his companion that he's typically walking with at this time of day. Because eventually in the next verse, he's going to say, where are you, Adam? I mean, so you've got this popular image that God and Adam have this daily routine where they go for walks in the garden. And who knows what they talk about. Maybe they talk about fruit smoothies and the great... Mm-hmm. greatest places to choose to go swimming. Uh, you know, who knows? What are, you, what are you talking about when you're walking through such a lovely place, you know, and, and you're date eating shakes, fruit? Right? Date shakes, there you go, <laughs> right? But a lot of this popular imagery actually can be traced back to a, a song that took the took the words here and kind of read between the lines and filled in some of the gaps. And we end up adopting a lot of that imagery 
Uh, but one of the things I want to point out is that there are a few ambiguous words in this passage which could actually convey a, a different meaning. All right. So keep in mind, and we all know the popular image of God walking with Adam you know, on a daily basis through the garden, enjoying the fellowship of one another. But there's another possibility here as well. In verse 8, it says, And they heard the sound of, I think it's pronounced kol, it's Q-O-L is the Hebrew word. Q-O-L. All right, we're going to call that word number one. All right, over here we're going to have a word two, and over here we're going to have word three. All right? They heard the kol of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool. All right, so that word is ruach. All right? In the cool of the day, and, and day is over here, is yom. Okay? All right, so those are our three Hebrew words that have a little bit of ambiguity associated with them, and I want, I want to talk about those for a few minutes. This first word right here is a word that basically means sound. Okay? And it can be, it, it's very broad, actually, in what it can mean. It can mean something as quiet as a whisper or as loud as a roar or a shout, okay? It can even be used, and these are all words that would uh, convey a voice, right? As if the word has a voice connotation to it. It doesn't even have to be voice. It can be a blast of, of a trumpet, all right? So it could be a blast, all right? This word right here, anybody recognize that word? We've seen it before in Genesis chapter 1. Ruach. Ruach is the, word, is the actual Hebrew word that's translated wind or spirit or spirit capital S. Okay. And then this last word here, you recognize this one up here. Yeah, yep. Same word. Day, exactly. So when we were going through Genesis chapter 1, we ran across this word a lot. Every time I came across the word day, it was yom. Okay? So here we have these three words here. And the interesting thing is, it conjures up different ways that you could interpret it, especially when you look at this first one. So a lot of your commentators wrestle with, how are we going to interpret this? And then especially when you get over to this one, how are we going to interpret that? Because what do you end up with? You end up with basically some of the possibilities might be something like, and they heard the... I don't know, what are we going to call this? The whisper of God, the roar of God, the shout of God, the blast, the voice of God, maybe? So a lot of them will go with sound of God, or they'll go with voice of God. Because so many of these words have to do with voice, but not all of them, so some of them go with sound. So your English translation committees, they'll often choose one of those two words to make their translation. Okay? And then you get to the next one. Walking in the garden, in the ruach, in the ruach of the, of the day. What is, in the wind of the day? In the spirit of the day? Hmm, how are we going to interpret this? So they'll usually go with, well, wind, maybe it's wind of the day. Maybe he's talking about, you know, it's the cool breezes that are coming through. You know, maybe it's not the middle of the day, but maybe the beginning or the end of the day when the breezes... So a lot of your translation committees have to choose how they're going to go. They have to marry themselves to one translation or to another. So most of your traditional translations, they'll choose either the cool of the day or they'll say something like when the cool winds are blowing. Okay, But recognize that your translation, if it says in English, if it has the word cool, the word they're translating cool is not a temperature word. It's a time word in the sense, in the way that they're interpreting it. Okay, They're talking about when the winds would blow, at the time of day the winds would blow. And they're emphasizing this meaning, the wind... All right, 
the wind meaning as to mean when the winds might blow or when the cool breezes might blow. So you can see they're kind of several layers of interpretation that they're having to go through to end up with what you end up in your hands, okay? And then this one here, the word day, all right? Typically translated day. It can actually have other translations as well. Sometimes as they're trying to go through, and a lot of times your Bible translators will do this, they'll try to, they'll try to see, okay, if we don't know what this word means, let's see what it means in, in relationship to the rest of the verse. And they'll also say, what, let's see what it means in other places that it appears. And maybe we can find a combination that's similar between these words. Okay. So regarding these combinations, these two words don't appear together in any other places. So it doesn't provide much when they look at ruach and day as far as what they're looking for. They can't find a combination of those words that really lends credibility to what they would try to seek the meaning to be here. But they do find these two words together in a couple passages. And when they find those two words together in passages, what they end up finding out is it's, it's talking about a storm. All right, you've got wind, a stormy wind, and you've got a stormy roar or thunder. In the passages that they have those two words together, the underlying theme is a storm, and it's a windy and a thundery situation, okay? And then what they do also, this one right here, like I said, most of the time it's translated day, but in a couple settings, in a couple verses, you can actually translate this word as an alternate, and, and it does have this meaning in those other passages. And that is also in relationship to a storm. And that shows up in Isaiah 27.8 and Zephaniah 2.2, where that word actually has this translation of storm. What this means is you do have for verse 8 the possibility, and I'm not saying, that, I'm not saying this is the way to translate it, I, I, it would be presumptuous of me to say that, but I did find one commentator went to, it's the most thorough commentator that I read when I prepare these lessons, and he pointed out that one of the possible translations for verse 8 would go something like this. They heard the roar of the thundering of the Lord moving about in the garden in the wind of the storm right after they've eaten right as they hide themselves. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's kind of intriguing, because if it is translated that way, it starts to make a little more sense. Why are they hiding? So it's a possibility. I throw that out there for your own, your own study or whatnot. It's not the way most of your translations uh, translate it, but it is a possible way. But most of your translation committees are going to go with, you know what, let's, let's, let's go with what's most well-known, because they can't say, unless they put like a footnote and a little note down in the margin or something, alternate reading, and then they would provide it down there. All right. So it's kind of interesting. There is a possibility that verse 8 could be, instead of God waltzing through the garden in the cool breezes of the day, that maybe God is stomping through the garden with a storm attending his presence. That's a possibility. All right. One other thing I want to bring up to your attention as well is this possibility. I couldn't escape from the fact, as I was reading through and preparing for this study, it ended up being that I ended up coming across several, if I could do this, comparisons between the tree that Eve ate from and God's law. Okay, The tree and the law. Number one, let's look at a few of these. Let's look at it. Number one, the tree is not evil. <laughs> it's not evil, right? It's not the tree of evil. It's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. All right, so number one, the tree is not evil. 
Romans 7.12. Romans 7.12, Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, just, and good. So regarding the tree, it's not evil. In fact, if you remember, Wes, we were talking about earlier in the study today, we found out that the tree, among the other trees that were created, God declared good. And here Paul describing the law. Good. And you're thinking, okay, Jeff, really? You're giving us a comparison of the law and the tree, and all you can come up with is that they're good. (laughs) All right, there's more. Number two. The second one, over here, the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, right? It reveals evil. Once they ate from the tree, oh my goodness, they found out what evil was, didn't they? Look over regarding the law at Romans 3.20. Somebody might look it up 3.20 and the other person look up 7.7. Seven. Seven, seven. You got 7.7? Seven, seven? All right, go with 7.7 seven, seven first. What then do we conclude that the law is sin? Far be it from our thoughts. Nevertheless... Were it not for the law, we should not have known sin. For instance, I should not have known about covetousness had not the law said, thou shalt not covet. So Paul says in that passage right there, he says, I wouldn't even known what sin was if it wasn't for the law. I wouldn't, and he uses the example, I wouldn't have even known what covetousness was had the law not said, you shall not covet. So the law, it's not that the law is evil, the law is good, and just as the tree is good, but just as the tree reveals evil, so does the law. The law helps you to see that behavior, that way of thinking, that pattern of, of lifestyle is evil. It helps you to see where sin is. And if you hadn't run across it, you might not know. Was well, somebody looking up 320? Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Through the law, we become conscious of sin. So Paul's point is, it's the law that brings to our consciousness that we've sinned, just as the tree for Adam and Eve brought to their consciousness sin. All right? So there's a comparison, two two traits now, between the tree and the law. They're both good. They both reveal evil. Third one. Third one here. Turn to Romans 4.15. Paul says something strange about the law in Romans 4.15. Where there is no law... There is no transgression. That's weird. Turn to 5.13. 5.13 says, Sin is not imputed where there is no law. It's as if Paul is talking to his audience. It's as if he's saying to them, A person can be spiritually naked, yet not be ashamed. Before they eat from the fruit of the law, if you will, they don't realize that they're naked and they're unashamed before they eat of that fruit. Just as Adam and Eve, before they ate of the fruit of the tree, they're described as being naked and unashamed. Blissfully ignorant. Blissfully ignorant would be a good way to put it. All right, let's put that up here. I like that. Blissfully ignorant. Same over here. Number four. There's another strange verse. What did Adam and Eve do after they had sinned, right? There was that shame it came. There was that attempt to with the fig leaves cover up. <laughs> okay. Right? When they're found out, when their sin is known to themselves, when they're confronted with their sinfulness, they try to cover up. What do we do when we find out that a particular behavior we've been engaging in for a while, a particular pattern of thinking that we've been engaging in for a long time, is sinful? We try to cover up. Sometimes we try to cover it in the sense of, you know, sweeping it under the rug and letting nobody find out. 
Or sometimes we think, ah, maybe I can make up for it with good deeds, human efforts. Maybe I can contribute more to a, you know, a particular uh, fundraising or society or nonprofit. Maybe I can donate my hours to a, at a food bank. And they're trying to cover up. They're trying to make up for a bad choice that they made. They're trying to cover. They're trying to get their good deeds to outweigh their bad. And what is that? It's just a human endeavor that ends up not lasting very long, shriveling up and turning to dust. Right? It's not really hiding anything from God. Just as the fig leaves in the garden didn't hide anything from God, as we'll find out in the next couple of verses next week. So our human efforts, our good deeds, our self righteousness, doesn't actually make up for or hide the fact that we've sinned. So even though we might want to cover up, it's ineffectual. The tree, they wanted to cover up afterwards. The law, after we find out we're sinful, we want to cover up afterwards. A fifth one, a fear of meeting God. All right, Adam and Eve eat from the tree. They hear him in the garden. What do they do? They hide. They don't want to meet God. They're not ready to meet their maker. What happens in our lives when we find out that we're sinful? Before we've given our lives to Christ, we find out we're wretched sinners. We're not ready to meet a holy God. What do we do? We want to hide ourselves. We're not ready to meet God. Right? So a fear of meeting God, when you finally come to the realization that you're sinful and he's holy, and you're not ready to have him deal with you in that regard. He's not your savior yet. Sixth one, another strange verse. We already looked at it, but let's look at it again. The other part of the verse Chapter 4, verse 15 of Romans. 4.15, because the law brings about wrath. All right, it talks about the law brings about wrath. Did the Garden of Eden, Tree of Knowledge and Good and Evil situation bring about wrath? Yes, it did. We're going to find out next week it did. They ate from the tree, and what happens? They end up hiding from God. They're not ready to meet him. And when they do end up meeting him, there's going to be some wrath being dished out. Brings about wrath. And then number seven, just as we've been talking about with these fig leaves here, these fig leaves that look nice and green, like we mentioned, and these fig leaves that are all shriveled up and turned to dust, that doesn't cover anything for very long. That doesn't serve any lasting purpose. That's ineffectual. There needs to be a divine solution. We're going to end up finding out in verse 21 that God provides them a covering that's more durable. So just as in the Garden of Eden picture of God providing them more durable covering for their sins, so is Jesus for us. That the law shows us, it points us to Christ. Because we find out in ourselves, we can't conjure up anything durable to cover our sins. We need a Savior, we need a solution that's divine, something outside of human efforts. So we find out for number seven, it's the necessity of a divine remedy. Whether it's in the Garden of Eden when they found out they needed a divine remedy to their nakedness, to their ineffectual human efforts trying to cover up, we find out in a spiritual sense we need a divine remedy for our sins. That there's no amount of good that we can do that's ever going to make up for the bad that we've done. That God doesn't grade on a curve. That God doesn't say, you know what, you did 51 good things and 49 bad things, I'll weigh the 51 and count you could go. No, you sin once, you're done. Outside of a divine remedy, you're lost. Outside of a divine remedy, you're uncovered. Outside of a divine remedy, any of your efforts that you want to put into it, it's all just going to turn to dust. All right.
Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for providing that divine remedy. We thank you, Lord, that you saw the situation in the garden just as you see the situation in our hearts and in our spirits as we find out our sinfulness and we want to hide and we're not ready to meet our maker and there's nothing we can do to make up for the bad choices we made because you are holy and righteous and we, when we come to that realization that we're not and never can be, we feel lost, Lord. We feel that there is no hope, that we just want to hide. But I thank you, Lord, that you provided us a divine remedy and the source of your blood. Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins in our place, the perfect spotless lamb in place of wretched us. And just as the perfect picture of what started in the garden, that you provided them durable coverings, lasting coverings, far beyond and far superior to anything they could come up with on their own efforts. So you do for us. Thank you, Lord, that those physical applications in the garden have a spiritual application for us. Thank you, Lord, that you care enough about us that you didn't just squash us and snuff us out as we deserved, but you made a way for us for no other reason other than you loved us. Go with us now, helping us to know you truly are a loving God. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.